Romans chapter number 11, and we're not going to go through uh, a large introduction this morning. Much of the introduction was set last week. But in Romans chapter number 11, as we arrived at a new chapter, uh, we are continuing the thoughts that the Apostle Paul had already written in chapters 9 and 10. So these are not new thoughts. But I do want to give you the kind of an overview statement that'll bring us back to where we were. And that is very simply this, is that the purposes of chapter number 11 of the book of Romans, when taken along with Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, clearly prove that the purposes of God have not failed. And not only have they not failed, his plan will always be worked out for his own glory. If we approach this chapter with that mind, with that mindset, and think about what Paul is talking about, it helps us to get our minds and our eyes off of ourselves and begin to look at God's plan. Uh, God's plan, God's purposes, we know this from being students of the Bible. We understand that God's plans and purposes are sometimes far different than what we think they ought to be or what they are. Uh, We set out and make plans every day. Uh, You have a purpose today. Uh, You've already set something today that is part of your purpose. Maybe part of your plan today was to be here. Uh, You have something else for the remainder of the day. Your purposes are set out and you're attempting to accomplish those things. But if your life is like mine, half of what you set out to do and accomplish doesn't happen. Maybe more than half. And we find ourselves saying, I feel like such a failure because I didn't accomplish what I set out to accomplish. Now, let me give you a little piece of insight today. Uh, We are always going to experience failure. Uh, Your purposes are going to fail. Your plan is going to fail. Whatever your ingenious plan you have today for some aspect of your life, it's going to fail ultimately. Now, it may not be tomorrow. It may not be anytime soon, but ultimately it's going to fail. Why? Because we're all fleeting Whatever plan you execute, whatever purpose you set out, you may accomplish it for a while, but one day your plan, your purposes are going to pass off the scene and there won't be anything really left. All throughout biblical history and all throughout the history of man, God has been working out his plan, working out his purposes, and they have never failed. Men have died. They've passed off the scene. God's plans are still being fulfilled. Sadly, and sometimes in our theological uh, astuteness, we've decided that God's plan must not be working because certain things are happening, which is what Paul was dealing with. Remember, we dealt with that question last week that the objections to the doctrines in which Paul was preaching was the question, hath God cast away his people? And Paul answered with a resounding, God forbid, And we began dealing with that statement that God has not cast away his people. And when we think about the purposes of God and we think about what God is is accomplishing, uh, don't use the phrase God is attempting or trying to carry out his plan. God is not attempting to do anything. God is carrying out his plan and his purposes. There's a vast difference between those two thoughts. If we serve a God who is just attempting to carry out a plan, that's not much of a God. But if we serve a God who will not fail, who will continue to carry out his plan and his purposes, now that's God. 
The Apostle Paul believed in a sovereign Lord. He believed in a God who not only would carry out that plan, but he would also use people in order to carry it out. I want you to notice the expression found in verse number two in response, again, to the question that was asked in verse number one. Verse two, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. So what I want to do this morning, there are five proofs that are contained in this chapter. We're not going to deal with all five today. If we even get through three, that'll be great. If we don't, then we'll pick up again next week. But there are five proofs that Paul deals with these objections about, proofs that God has never nor will ever fully cast away his people. Remember, I gave you a brief outline of all of chapter number 11 last week, which showed you that verses 1 through 10 show us that the rejection of the Jews was not a total rejection. And then I showed you in verses 11 through verse 32 that the rejection of Israel is not final. And then we looked at the very last part of the chapter, which is a a doxology of praise or praise to the Lord that he has not cast away his people. Now, what this does tell us is that there is an individual group that he is mentioning. Notice the Bible does not say, God hath not cast away. It says, God hath not cast away his people. That is a very defining statement. It does not mean that there will not be people cast away, but it does tell us that God has not cast away his people. Now, that phrase bothers a lot of people, and I will tell you for years it bothered me. Uh, There are still times I find myself saying, uh, what are the implications of something like this? Uh, What what does this mean? What does does the, the evidence throughout the Bible support to show me? What does that mean for me? Well, remember, the Apostle Paul gave proof that not all of Israel has been cast off or that not all the Jews have been cast off. Because remember, the argument Paul made was, I am a Jew and I am one of his people. So ultimately, we know that all of Israel was not cast off. Some today make that mistake of saying, at this moment in time, all of Israel has been cast off. That is just not true. Now, Israel as a nation... And we have to consider Israel this morning. Israel as a nation, the Bible teaches us, as a nation has been blinded to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But it does not mean that every Jewish person or every Israelite, we'll use that term, has been cast off. So what does that tell us? It tells us, first of all, that even though Paul says he was a Jew, we can be sure of our own election of grace, but we cannot be sure of another man's election of grace. In other words, it is very prideful for you and I to declare who else is a recipient of the grace of God. It's almost presumptuous, but it's almost worse that it's pride-filled to declare someone else is not one of God's people. Now, 
The Apostle Paul made it very clear that he was an Israelite. He, he did not denounce his heritage. He, says, I, he said, I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. That's basically Paul giving you his entire heritage. It would be like me telling you where I was born, where I was raised, and what I was. Paul says, I am a Jew of the Jews, and yet God has not cast me away. But there was an objection to this, because if this was true, that God has cast away Israel, then all of Israel must be cast away. But we know that the Lord was pleased to save the Apostle Paul. We knew him as Saul of Tarshish. He was the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin, but God made him a minister of the gospel. God made him a minister of the gospel. If not a single other Jew would be saved, all right? Now, I don't believe this is the case, but if not another single Jew was to be saved, Paul is living proof that God has not cast away every single one. Now, in our humanity, we say, well, that doesn't seem quite fair if, Jew, if he's the only Jew that was saved. Well, we know that's not the case, but that's what Paul's argument is here. Paul says, I am living proof of the saving grace of God. Every one of us this morning that's been saved are living proof of a saving God. You are living proof of a saving God. If you know Christ today, you show the evidence that you have received this election of grace. He has not cast off all the Jews, nor has he cast off every Gentile. Now, we understand that as we read this, Paul himself provides himself as evidence. He says, I am proof number one. I am proof that God has not cast away all of Israel. Now, when he mentions the word foreknew, Immediately, again, I think I mentioned this in the introduction last week, let's be careful not to come to this text with a presupposition of what we want the Bible to say. There is a foreknowledge that is specifically directed towards Israel. And what Paul is talking about right here in this word foreknew is he is talking about the national election of Israel as his people. Now, it doesn't mean that we are not part of that foreknowledge as Gentiles, but in the context, Paul's been talking about Israel. So let's keep the context proper. Now, as he moves through this, notice what he says. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias or Elijah. Paul says this. I'm going to give you proof number two. What does the Bible say regarding this election of grace? What did Elijah say? Paul is like an attorney presenting proof. He's like an attorney presenting evidence. What's, what's been uh, kind of a personal side note, what's been funny for me is every time I approach the scripture, just with a, a, a basic little criminal justice background I've had, I tend to look at scripture that way. I tend to look at scripture and I say, okay, here's what he's saying. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Convict him of this. If this is true, prove it to me. And I have approached the Bible that way. And I will tell you that this is the way, really, that I fully came to understand what the doctrines of grace were by showing the Bible and coming to the Bible saying, look, I'm struggling with understanding this. Prove it. And guess what? The Bible proved it. You know what scares people the most is they're afraid of what the Bible might prove if they actually follow it. 
And when I started seeing the evidence, I was like, you can't argue with this. But man, this was a struggle. There was a time in my life I would have been the prosecuting attorney, not the, not the attorney for the defendant. The Apostle Paul says, I'm living proof, number one. Number two, what about Elijah? What did Elijah say about this? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel. Have you ever noticed that? Paul says, Elijah made intercession against Israel. In other words, Elijah, we're going to look at that content in that passage this morning. Elijah says he made intercession against Israel. He wanted them destroyed. You know that little, little account of the prophets of Baal. Well, if you don't, let's look at it this morning. Go, go to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings and go to chapter number 19. This is what Paul is referencing. Again, let the evidence be proven. 1 Kings chapter number 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse number 9. Now, the context of 1 Kings chapter number 19, you all remember the prophet Elijah is on the run, and he's being chased by a woman named Jezebel. And he finds himself literally, he sits down and he requests to God, God, and this is my paraphrase, kill me. Just take me. Now, this is, this is Elijah, all right? This is Elijah who, who, just, who just saw the hand of God move in this powerful way. And now he's on the run from Jezebel, who is Ahab's wife. And he finds himself under a juniper tree, and he finds the Lord taking care of him. And we see in verse number seven that the Lord touches him, tells him to arise and eat. And because the journey is too great, God's providing for him. God's taking care of him. And in verse number nine, here's what it says. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, what doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here is Elijah in a woe-is-me moment. Now again, I'm not saying that in the same circumstances I would not be just like Elijah. I'll be honest with you. I'd probably be doing the same thing Elijah's doing. And most of you tough guys would be doing the same thing. I know we like to look at this and say, boy, what's wrong with him? You all been doing the same thing. Don't give Elijah too hard of a time because we've all felt the way Elijah feels. You know what Elijah feels? He feels like he's all alone. And yet God's going to tell him something about what he's doing. Now, what is Elijah implying? Well, he's even more implying. He's saying, listen, all of the children of Israel, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. He's making a paintbrush statement. He says, Israel has forsaken you, God, and I'm the only one standing. I'm the only one who's still standing for you. Verse 11, and he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle 
and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Now, when you repeat something twice, you're pretty steadfast on what you think. God asked Elijah twice, what are you doing here? He says the same thing twice. The children of Israel, they're all doing wrong. There's none of them left. And the Lord said unto him, go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, thou shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meloha, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet, yet, I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. At the very least, Elijah is told by God, I have 7,000 that I personally have set aside, set apart. Isn't it amazing? Nobody argues with that, that that's a picture of election right there. Now, they'll argue, they'll say, well, that's just election for the Jews, but yet that's, we've already talked about this, just how God included the Gentiles. So Paul's first proof is that he's one, he's a, a Jew, and he's not been cast off. Second proof, Paul says, is because God is faithful in his covenant of election, God is faithful even though men are unfaithful. Listen, if your election of grace was dependent upon your faithfulness, none of us are getting in. Because none of you can say today, I have been 100% faithful to God since the day he saved me. I would dare say we failed in our faithfulness this past week. Praise God, your election of grace is not based upon your own faithfulness. Because you couldn't do it. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. These are the Jews or the Gentiles, but in the context, specifically the Jews, there's a sense we know this is to be true, that every person who walks on the face of this earth belongs to God. They are his. He does with them as he will, but they're all not foreknown. They're not all objects of this election of grace. Now, we've got to be careful that we don't think that a whole race is cast off because it looks like most of them are unbelievers. How many nations have you cast off by looking because the majority of them were unbelievers? How many times have you said, listen, we ought to just destroy that whole group of people over there because they're all wicked. We're prone to make generalized statements. Even in our own lives, one thing is wrong, and yet we say the whole thing's a mess, Right? I mean, have you been guilty of that? Let's, let's, let me get real personal. When husbands and wives, something comes up in your life and there's a problem with the other, suddenly it's one little thing, but now the whole marriage is a mess. It's called overgeneralizing. It's saying one thing here. 
and to look at a nation, and let's say 99% of the nation is wicked unbelievers, that means there's 1% that is not. The problem is you don't know the 1% or the 10%. We're not to call out a whole nation and say, listen, you can't possibly be one of God's. It's not our place. What should we do if you have been a recipient of this election of grace, a people in which he foreknew, what should your desire be? It should always be, be hopeful of others. Be praying for the salvation of others. The more wicked the nation, the more fervent your prayer ought to be. Now again, that goes against, that goes counter. Why? Because our pride rises up and says, I'm not that bad. You know what that is? That's a little bit of saying that your God's grace is due to a little bit of your worthiness, and it's not. It's not. Not even a little. And it's so easy to say, God, listen, here I am, Elijah. All of Israel's gone. I mean, I just saw you roll down fire from heaven on the prophets. I just saw you do it. They're all gone. And God says, no, 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 Elijah. There's 7,000 which I have personally set aside by myself. Many people will hear the Lord say, I never knew you. Sadly, many of Israel will be hearing those same words, I never knew you. They were called the people of God. They were blessed with the promises. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had the sacrifices. But it's very clear throughout Scripture that they were not all foreknown. The Bible very clearly demonstrates that there are many who perished in unbelief. Elijah prayed for him, certainly, but what did he pray for? He didn't pray for Israel's salvation. He prayed against him. There's a lesson in that. He was praying that Israel would be destroyed. These wicked people would be destroyed instead of praying and begging God for their salvation. See, God has said he will be the God of his own people. The Bible refers to them a thousand generations who he has loved and chosen from eternity past. Every single person in glory today is there by the choice of God. Every single person in hell today is the author of their own damnation. Again, the mysteries of God that make us say, how can both of these exist? How can God be sovereign and man be responsible? Because that's what the proof of the Bible teaches. My condemnation is of my own doing but my salvation is of the Lord. So Paul is remembering Elijah. And instead of praying, Elijah complained against Israel for their idolatry, for their contempt, their unbelief. Even Elijah in some ways believed that God must be done with Israel because look what's happened to them. They are destroying themselves and God is destroying them And Elijah says, I must be the only true prophet left. It's very tempting for all of us, especially those of us that solidly believe in the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of what we're teaching. Again, this is just a little application. It is very common to feel like you're the only one and you're standing alone. Sometimes we look around us and we, we see our, our, our congregation and we, we become disgruntled, we become discouraged, and we say, why are we so small? Can I tell you something honestly, as straight, straight shooters I can be today? 
Small doesn't mean that God's not in it. Okay? Small doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose and doesn't have a plan. God sometimes works in the small things and we understand that as time rolls on, there is going to be a falling away. That falling away is going to be a falling away from the truths of what God's word teaches. And that falling away has been happening for generations. But I will tell you this morning, we are not alone in what we're standing for. And it's easy to say, you know what, I'm tired of standing. You're not the only one standing. There are faithful men who are preaching this same doctrine this morning, who are preaching to smaller congregations than this. Why are they standing on it? Because they've seen the Bible and it's proven itself over and over and over again that God is doing all that he said he would do. And there's a principle I want you to understand. God has always had a remnant. And it's not just Israel. He's always had a remnant. He's always had a group of people who refused to bow to Baal. Elijah was not the only one left. Elijah was reminded, God said, I have 7,000 men. You're not alone. Sincere men like Elijah are often wrong when they despair or think that God's plan is failing. Folks, again, don't, don't ridicule Elijah because you and I are just like him. Don't ridicule the apostle Peter and his failures because you and I are just like him. We're all tough when we're standing outside of it, but when you really are facing it, and had you been like Elijah, I'm on the run and there's nobody has my back. Nobody had the Apostle Paul's back for the most part either, but yet he knew what he believed. He knew why he believed and he stood firmly upon that. Elijah reacted much the way that we would today. Many people were making this statement that God's not sending a revival because we're not doing the right things. No, God sometimes isn't sending a revival because he's working out his plan in another way. People say the only hope for America is another great awakening. I say, no, the only hope for America is to understand there's a sovereign God in control of it all. And even if an awakening doesn't come, God is still in control. That's a totally different way of looking at it. There are preachers who are standing in pulpits today saying, unless we see a revival, it's failing. No. If you think it's failing, then you think God fails. And you think God's attempt only attempting to make something happen. Oh, I get so bothered when someone says, if we would just get out of the way and let God. You've never hindered God in any way, shape, or form from doing anything. <laughs> it's never happened. But yet, we can be like Elijah. We can feel like, wait a minute. Oh, God's plan's failing. God's purposes. And by the way, Elijah was a faithful man. He's as faithful as he could be, but he was also a sinner. He fell into times when his own depravity got the best of him, right? God always has a people and has always had a people he foreknew, redeemed, he called them. Even in Elijah's day, when there appeared to be to the rest of the world, none of God's people left. God knew them because God called them. God had chosen them. And there was a greater number than he ever expected. 
It's interesting, Paul uses that phrase, who have not bowed the knee, or in 1 Kings, who have not bowed the knee unto Baal. There are people who are chosen from everlasting to everlasting, and they're not remnants of God, but they're remnants of what is left. They're the idolaters. The word Baal is an interesting word. The word Baal literally means master or patron. And a master or patron, the word patron especially means as one whose power resides in another. In other words, those worshipers of Baal, they believe their power was found in Baal. Folks, there are plenty of Baal worshipers in our world today. They're still alive and well. They're seeing their power in something else. Their power is not in God. They think their power is in whatever the God of their world is. Now, if you go back to Romans chapter number 11, look at Paul's next statement here. Romans chapter number 11, and look at uh, the, the, the verse. He, he says in verse number four, we've already read the text in 1 Kings, but he says, but what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And here's what he says in verse five. But even so then... At this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Even now, within that old nation of Israel, that nation which appears to have fallen completely away, there are those within that nation who have been brought to faith in Christ. Just as Elijah thought, there's no one left, There has always been a remnant. We are often very quick to announce somebody as a reprobate or to announce someone as being outside of the body of Christ. I have watched even the most faithful and most theologically astute, strongest pastors make a declaration of who is in and who's out. It's a sad thing because we've not been given that responsibility. It's not our job to determine how many does God have. However, it is our job to acknowledge that God has a purpose and a plan that he's working out and his plan and purpose will not be hindered in any way, shape, or form for any reason. Let's hypothetically say every believer on the planet was wiped out except one. Would God's plan have failed? No. Would have purposes have failed? No. What will the world say? The world will say, listen, there's only one of those Jesus followers left. We've destroyed them all. The world will say falsely and ignorantly, see, that God wasn't so great. How do you explain to a missionary family whose loved one is martyred on the mission field that that wasn't a failure? If you were the the pastor who had to call a family and say, listen, we just got word this morning that your loved one who's been faithfully serving in another country, we found out they lost their life today. Are you going to apologize to that family and say, we're sorry, uh, there must have been a failure in God's plan? No. Don't try to figure out what God's doing. You don't have the theological answer to determine, to tell a family that will comfort them why their loved one just lost their life on a foreign mission field, preaching the gospel. But you do know there's a sovereign God that's in control of it all. 
What makes a person pick up and move a family to a place like that knowing that their very life is in danger if they don't truly believe in the sovereign plan of God? That's how they know that if my life is taken on this mission field, I will know that God's purposes and plan was still being fulfilled even though it looked like the world had won. There are periods of history where man has clearly said that, look, God's plan's failing. God's purposes are not being carried out. Paul gives those first two proofs about himself being proof that God has not cast away all his people. Number two, he gives the proof of Elijah and what happened there. And the third and final proof we'll look at quickly this morning. Paul declares, even at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There has always been some, there will always be some. Elijah was not the only Jewish believer in his day, and Paul says, I'm not the only one in my day. The number may be very small. Remember back in Romans 9, verse 27, we came across this, and we probably didn't fully associate it at the time, but Romans 9, 27 says, Isaiah, or Isaiah, also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Now, I don't know if you can comprehend, he said, Israel, the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Now, your mind can't even grapple with that. Number one, you say, which sea? All of them. Though the numbers be this, Take heart, a number of them, a remnant, will be saved. Well, what's small? Well, think about what he's saying. So we have this evidence that Paul is presenting here. God has always had his people according to the election of grace. We know passages such as Ephesians chapter number 1, verses 3 and 4, which remind us that this Remnant is not just about Israel, but it's about all that, are in, all that are in Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We know the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, was not just talking to Israel. He was not just talking to Jews. He was talking to Jews and Gentiles alike. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, verses 2 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 5. Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. That word election again, God has predestined his people to salvation and his own glory by choosing them in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does that mean about election? Just like God's plan and God's purposes, his election is infallibly effective. None chosen have never fallen away. Now think about that. 
None chose have ever fallen away. They receive the grace to believe the gospel of Christ. So when they hear the gospel, it doesn't just come to them in word only. Notice what Paul says, it comes in power. Many people hear the word, but it doesn't come to them in power. And without power, it is nothing but words. So to think that we can convert ourselves just by hearing it, no. You not only have to hear it, but it has to come to you in power, the power of God, the Holy Spirit working that out. So Paul says there is this remnant according to the election of grace. Yes, there's a remnant in Israel. There's a remnant of the Gentiles. There are people in whom God has chosen. They were chosen in Christ. They were chosen from eternity past. They are chosen to be like Christ. And they are chosen according to his own will. Now, out of those five, many only believe four and five. Which means God chose them to be like him and God chose them according to his own will. But they don't believe about before an eternity passed or that God, without merit, chose them. Listen, almost every church today no matter what denomination you go to, believes in some sort of election of some sort. They do. They all, have a, they all have an opinion of it, and they believe in some aspect of it. So what does the Bible's aspect teach us? It shows that election is of God. It is taught in Scripture. It is based upon the works of God, not upon the foreseen merit nor man's will, but God choosing according to his will, purpose, mercy, grace, and his plan. The Bible shows us in our study in John, we learned this, that if we were left to ourselves, we would not love God, you wouldn't seek God, nor would you come to Christ if you're left to yourself. If God just left you alone and said, you're on your own, nobody's coming. That's what Paul's talking about coming in power. Again, they're not easy things to think about. They're not easy truths to comprehend. And like I've said, many, many people with their refusal, with their afraid of what they might find, will not search scriptures for themselves because they're afraid it might just uncover that that's true. In John 5, verse number 40, the Bible says, and you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. And we understand that it is by the drawing of the Father through the Son that man comes to Christ. Now let's just touch on this fourth proof and then we'll probably pick this up next week. Verse number six of Romans 11. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So the fourth proof that Paul presents here is he declares that even though all are not elect and chosen, let those who are the recipients of this election of grace remember they have been freely chosen. Free grace. Free grace. Freely chosen by God. Salvation is by the pure, unmerited, free grace and mercy of God. Man's works, man's efforts, man's deeds are never, ever involved. 
The problem with that for many people is that it undoes what they can tell the people to do. It's the secret. I can give you Bible commandments. I can say, thus saith the Lord, and you have to deal with it. Now, you can get mad at the preacher. You can say, I hate that church because I, I, don't, I don't like that. Okay, so you don't like the Bible. You don't love the Bible. You can argue with God about anything that he has said. But when you begin to say, I can, I've got to have something to make you conform to what I'm trying to accomplish. That's when I start going extra biblical on you and saying, well, this is what the Bible teaches about this. And yet, when you pick your Bible up and you start thumbing through the pages, you can't find it. Or it's some little obscure verse over here and its true context has nothing to do with what they're trying to tell you to do. It's not there. If I say, boy, that's a long jump between what you're telling me and what the Bible context actually says. They're not even related. But when we understand what, what Paul is talking about here, and we understand that if salvation came to us because of even the smallest of our works, then it's not grace. Think about the smallest thing you've ever done for God. Now you say, what's small? It's going to vary. If you think that that has anything to do with your salvation, then it ceases to be grace. So if in the back of your mind and in your heart you say, yeah, preacher, preach on. I'm right there with you. I believe in the doctrines of grace. I believe in being saved by grace. And right in the back of your mind is saying, I believe in that. And I, boy, I tell you, I have a, I've got a really good record of all the grand things I've done for God. It's now works. Right then it becomes works. If while you're rolling that amount in your mind and you're thinking and you're thinking and, you're, and suddenly baptism pops up. Now your baptism becomes a work. Now if you're rolling around and you think, my repentance, your repentance was a gift of God. Your repentance can become a work. People say, what is this? It's Bible. To have no merit at all means none. The smallest of works. If you can find a single reason as to why God should save you other than his free grace, then you're advocating salvation by works. Plain and simple. If you can find any reason that you can come to the conclusion, God should save me because, or God saved me due to, you have now have a salvation that's based on works and is not Bible salvation. Well, again, you're being confronted with things that are not easy. Why? It's that little thing of pride that rises up. God certainly has got to be pleased with my effort today. Listen, let me tell you, let me tell you one of the great dangers of a pastor. is to stand up here and to say, I'm telling you what, if God's not pleased with that, boy, he doesn't know preaching. That's dangerous. Nobody should be standing behind here trying to impress you, trying to get God to be pleased. All he wants us to do is to be faithful to his word. 
And if the faithfulness to his word runs every single person out of town and runs every single person out of a church, if you're standing and you're preaching the faithfulness of God, leave the results up to God. We could very well find ourselves completely standing what seems to be alone one day. We could find ourselves in a place where we say, listen, uh, this, this doctrine is getting too divisive. This doctrine is causing too many problems. I'm going to tell you something. I talked to a brother last night. I'm not going to call his name, but he's, 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 I consider him a friend, not a close friend. But he was talking to me about another issue, and he just made the statement. He said, you know what? These doctrines of grace are so precious to me. And he said, I just cannot think about not having them. And I thought, you know, that's so simple and it's so profound, but yet that's somebody who gets it. They're not looking at the doctrines of grace as being something hateful. They're looking at that's my only hope. They're looking at that saying, wait a minute, that's my only hope. Because they see when the proof comes out and the evidence is presented, they're guilty. And apart from God, there's nothing they can do. It's precious because they realize that God, because of this election of grace, they're not part of their justification. They're justified because God has done it all. I put this out this morning. I'm going to finish with it right here. The election of grace is not that by which men chose grace, but by which God chose us to give us his grace. Don't ever look at your grace as something that you chose and then God responded by giving it to you. Look at it for what it is. God chose you and gave you that grace. Next week, we'll start, we'll deal a little bit more with verse number six, but then we'll get into proofs four and five, which will be contained in verses seven through 10. Let's stand together if you would, and we'll be dismissed in prayer.